Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It is, as Wayne said, wonderful to hear your voices, and it is a, it's, it's good to see the sun, isn't it? Yeah, and it was, it's just so beautiful outside, and uh, I just, I want to thank the Building and Grounds team for, for just the, the beauty outside, the special events team for putting together the flowering cross and de- decorating our space, uh, as well as the hot cross buns. They are delicious. Thank you, Mariah. Um, and uh, just also the, the worship team for the incredible work they put into this morning, the sound team. Uh, we just were really grateful for everything you guys have done to put together that, vi- that live feed from our church plant in Eau Claire. Um, that you guys made it look really easy. That was actually a little bit more complex than it looked. Uh, so well done and what a great thing to celebrate together. What a wonderful thing to celebrate. Well, as Wayne began the service, I'd like, to, I'd like to continue. He is risen. Amen. I believe that, and I've, I'm pinning all my hopes on that. I've pinned my whole life on that confession. And of course, as we think about that confession, that he is risen from the dead, if we reflect on it for a moment, you realize how odd that confession is how bizarre the claim. It's a, shall we call it medically implausible claim? (laughs) That a man rises from the dead? Everything about the Christian story that we've heard that's been handed down to us is bizarre. A scorned savior, a hero who was unwanted. A murdered Messiah, a crucified Christ, that's totally unexpected and very implausible. Most historians agree Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century, apparently had a remarkable ministry of sorts, and was crucified by Rome. Where disagreement tends to enter in is the claim that three days later he rose from the dead. It wasn't just medically implausible to us moderns, it was implausible to the ancients. When Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus at the city of Athens, the response of many in the crowd was laughter. They mocked him, because it's foolishness, resurrection from the dead. Yet as the theologian Fleming Rutledge has pointed out, without the resurrection, no one would have ever heard of this Jewish man from Nazareth. He would have just been yet another first century messianic pretender, crushed by Rome. A flash in the pan, by now long forgotten. And yet the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was implausible then as it is now, entirely unexpected. Even his own disciples were completely shocked by his arrest, dumbfounded and dismayed by his uh, crucifixion and death. And when he was resurrected, did they believe? No. Even when they saw him, the scriptures tell us some still doubted. Did Jesus not tell them about this? Yes, many times he told them, I'm going to be crucified and then I will be raised on the third day. 
And they thought, well, this was a metaphor for something. What is, what is this an analogy for? They could not grasp this concept that the stone the builders would reject and they would reject would become the chief cornerstone. Was this unexpected by the scriptures of Israel? No. From Genesis on, the pattern repeats. Remember Joseph with his technicolor dreams, telling his brothers that he would reign over them with his rainbow jacket? They didn't like it too much and threw him in a pit, leaving him from dead. The stone the builders rejected would become the prince of Egypt, as it were. He would be the second in command of the known world and would save not just Israel, but the, the, all the nations of the known world. Moses, this privileged kid who grew up in Pharaoh's house, a would-be savior of his brethren in slavery. When he tried to split up a fight between two Jewish slaves, was rebuked by them as a murderer, and he was. And he ran in fear in exile into the wilderness. And yet, this rejected stone would become the cornerstone that would lead Israel out of the house of slavery. David, that ruddy kid of Jesse's house, overlooked even by Samuel, would spend a good portion of his reign on the run, no crown, no throne, hiding in caves. The stone the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone. What about the prophets? Surely the prophets were received and honored by Israel in their day. Surely their words were held as precious. We know that the prophets, one after another, were rejected by their own people. The words were not received but spurned, and yet these spurned words of the prophets would become the foundation of Israel's scriptures. And so when Centuries later, Jesus appears on the scene from Nazareth. He gives this parable of the tenants. A man dug a vineyard, and when it was time for the crop, he sent servants to receive a portion of the profits. But those who were employed to run the vineyard rejected every servant he sent, treating them uh, with dishonor turning them away, giving them none of the owner's profits. And finally, finally, the owner says, I will send my own son. Surely they will honor him. And what do they do with the son? They kill him. And Jesus says, have you not read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone laid for a new building. It is the most important one. It is the one for which the whole structure will be built from. It must be true. It must be solid. It must form a solid foundation, not only for the other foundation stones, but for the superstructure that will lay atop it. What is the stone laid for in Scripture, this poetic stone? A new temple? A new city? A new Jerusalem? The foundation stone for a new house, a house that would be for all peoples, not just Israel, the household of God. It is the basic building block for a future, for the future, 
for a new humanity, for a new people, broken but renewed and enjoying what the Apostle Peter calls a living hope. In fact, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, where Peter writes about this living hope with such eloquence. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And I would encourage you to open a physical Bible because we're going to be looking at another text Peter quotes in the Old Testament. But the apostle opens his letter in verse 3 of chapter 1, speaking of the living hope that we have been birthed into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then speaks paradoxically of a living stone, a resurrected rock. And while for some this rock will be a new foundation for life and hope, for others this will be a, a rock of offense, a scandal is the word he uses, to trip them up. Verses four and following of First Peter two reads, as you come to him a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and it is marvelous in our sight and we proclaim his marvelous excellencies in the world. Would you pray with me as we dive into this together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have laid a stone in Zion, a foundation stone that is sure and solid. Finally, something in the world we can stand on. Help us to stand on it now, Lord, and not trip over it. By your grace, we pray. Amen. We, we saw last week as Wayne preached uh, on Palm Sunday, this text that Peter cites from Psalm 118 that was our call to worship. The stone that the builders rejected becomes the, the cornerstone. It was consistently and repeatedly lived out in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and especially in Jesus' earthly ministry. Even while Jesus was being hailed by the crowds, as the son of David and proclaimed as savior, Hosanna. As Wayne pointed out last week, while the crowds are cheering, what is Jesus doing? He's crying. Why is he crying? Because he knows that the stone that they're hailing superficially, they will in a moment reject. He said it. Oh Israel, if only you knew Jerusalem the day of your visitation, but you are blinded. You cannot see it. 
And the same rejection occurred during the preaching of the apostles after Christ's resurrection. The preaching of the disciples of the apostles in the Roman Empire was largely, not entirely, thank God, but largely rejected by Israel. It was a stumbling block. It was foolishness to them. And yet, a new Israel was formed, a remnant, a remarkable people who would turn out to change the world as we know it. The stone the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And it wasn't just Israel who by and large rejected this living stone. It was the Gentiles. It was the Roman Empire. The notion of a savior being crucified wasn't just repugnant, it wasn't even false. It was so unimaginably ridiculous to the Roman audience. Paul says to the Greek, it's utter foolishness, Christ crucified. I'm gonna show you guys the earliest image we have of Jesus Christ. This is the earliest image from the second century. It's a bit of Roman graffiti on a wall mocking Christians and it says, Alex worships his God. And on the cross hangs a man with the head of a jackass. This is the first image of Christ. Utter foolishness. Lucian, a second century skeptic of Christianity, described it as the absurd worshiping of a crucified philosopher. And it wasn't just the cross that was ridiculous. The resurrection was ridiculous. Implausible in the ancient world. Another second century skeptic named Celsus described the account of the resurrection as the delusions of half-frantic women. He could have hardly despised it anymore. The delusions of half-frantic women. Utterly ridiculous, he said. And in his arguments with the church father by the name of Origen, he said, listen, your Jesus is no different than Hercules or Dionysus. These are mere mortals who after they died, their followers created legends to make them larger than life, to turn them into gods. And Origen's response was beautiful. He said, really? Show me a community of Hercules. Show me the church of Dionysus, where people's lives have been radically transformed by the life and teaching of their hero. Because I can show you mine. A whole new people, radically transformed. A whole new community, enlivened with a living hope. As you come to him, the living stone, you yourselves become living stones, alive with his resurrection energy, pulsating with the divine life, the very life of the immortal God. And we are being built together into the city of God, a new people, the people of God. How do we come to him? How is it that, what does Peter mean when he says, as you come to him? At the first, the first and most obvious answer is it's faith. I mean, he, he mentions belief in verse seven, those whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, quoting Isaiah chapter 28. 
Verse seven, he continues, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone becomes a rock of offense. Faith is coming to Christ. But it's not merely just our conversion event when we first heard and believed. It's, it's an ongoing coming that everyone is called to do and to continually do. Peter is reflecting here uh, on a number of Old Testament texts, but perhaps the most important text Peter reflects throughout his letter is Psalm 34. In fact, 1 Peter's been called a sermon of Psalm 34. He quotes it at length in chapter three. He just quoted it here in chapter two, verse three. Now that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's Psalm 34, verse eight. Well, here likewise, when he uses the language of as you come to him, I think he still has Psalm 34 in his mind. On the screen, you'll see what I mean from Psalm 34, four through six. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. That's the English translation of the Hebrew, but the Greek text it seems Peter's using renders verse five this way, also on the screen, draw near to him or come to him and be enlightened, be made radiant and your faces shall not by any means be ashamed. The language there is identical to what he quotes from Isaiah. Those who believe in him will not by any means be ashamed. In other words, what the psalmist is talking about and what Peter's talking about is a continual drawing near to God in our fears, in our anxieties, and in our doubts. And this becomes all the more clear when we look at the texts from Isaiah that Peter is quoting. Peter here quotes Isaiah twice. And so I, this is where I wanna ask you to flip in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter eight. I don't have this on the screen, so you'll have to use your Bible. <laughs> Isaiah chapter eight, verses 11 and following. And here's the context for Peter's quote about this mysterious stone. Verse 11 says, for the Lord spoke thus to me, this is Isaiah speaking with a strong hand upon me. In other words, Isaiah felt the conviction of the Lord and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Who's this people? Judah, the people of God, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. When he talks about the fear in Jerusalem, he's referencing a very specific event. In chapter seven, the leaders of Jerusalem hear that their northern neighbors, northern Israel, their brothers, have joined an alliance with a foreign nation, Syria, to attack Judah. 
And it says when they heard this news, their hearts shook like the trees in a forest after a mighty wind. They are utterly terrified. Their knees are knocking. They are scared to death. And Isaiah is told, do not be afraid. This is not the threat you need to worry about. And yet, they would be afraid. That is Jerusalem. You and I stumble on this rock the same reason why Jerusalem stumbled on that rock. It's because you and I fear the wrong things. We are afraid of the wrong things. Our anxieties are occupied with things that are disproportionate to the attention we give them. They were fearing foreign powers and an alliance with what should be their ally coming against them. You and I likewise have fear on the global stage between Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Lebanon this week, China, North Korea, Iran's nuclear program. There is a lot to fear. Even the, the supposed end of the American century, which some pundits have said January 6th signaled the unraveling of the American supremacy. There's division in our nation that is unparalleled, we've heard from numerous experts since the Civil War. America's future, it seems, is in significant doubt. And this leads us to this kind of conspiratorial thinking that Isaiah here is, says, do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Conspiratorial th thinking is the symptom of fear. It's fear masked as control, a kind of control, the control of secret knowledge. But not just conspiratorial thinking, the radical doubt we have about our institutions, the, the rising cynicism we have, is all symptoms of a fear that is unworthy of our hearts. Financial disaster. When you're attacked, you lose your means of self-support. And here we are looking at recession in the face. Job growth has slowed, which my financial advisor tells me is a good thing. But the stock market is the worst it's been since 2007, and it might well get worse. We're afraid by what was going on around us. You heard the news this week of the shootings on the Isle of Palms, six injured by high school students. What is happening? The six deaths in Nashville in a Christian private school. It feels as if our world, America has been possessed by evil and we can't shake it. We can't fix it. And we're afraid. When COVID hit, we were understandably afraid. But again, an overreaction. Did anybody see COVID coming? Yes. Experts have been predicting a global pandemic for decades. They're saying, hey, it's time. It's time. And when it came, we were like, how in the world did this happen? <laughs> right? And behind all of these fears certainly is the fear of death. It's the loss of life and all that it provides us. It's the loss of control of our lives that terrifies us. In another text in Isaiah's scroll, linked with chapter 8 quite remarkably by a number of important parallels, both verbal and conceptual, 
he brings up the stone again. And he's speaking again to Jerusalem's leadership, whom he calls traitors. And he says, y'all have made a covenant with death. They really made a covenant with Egypt, thinking it would protect them from the rising power of the Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah says, no, y'all made a covenant with death. You shook hands with the devil, and you may be protected this round, but the devil always comes collecting, and death will come knocking at your door. And this is what he says. It's on the screen from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will be unshakable. That's the Holman translation. Your translation might say be in haste, but this poetically captures the idea you will not run in panic. You will be unshakable because you will have firm ground even though the whole earth gives way. You will be solid. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel tells us the only thing you and I have to fear is God himself, and he is really good. Look again at chapter 8, verse 13, when he says, but the Lord of hosts, him shall, be, shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. This is quoted by Peter again to the Christians, and he says, let Christ be holy. Let him be your fear. A fear that causes us not to run away from him, but to run to him. Here's the remarkable thing about the fear of Christ. It makes you fear less. There's nothing in this world that can shake you. If you jump up in chapter 8 to verses 9 and 10, you'll see Isaiah mocking the threats that so terrified the leaders of Judah. Look at verses nine and 10. This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of this mysterious figure, Emmanuel. And he says this, be broken you peoples, be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. I'll say it again, strap on your armor and be shattered. Do your worst. Right? Verse 10, take counsel together. It'll come to nothing. Speak a word. It won't stand. Why? God is with us. Emmanuel. Amen. We mock even death itself. Did you know that? Paul teaches us to sing, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And for 2,000 years, Christians have mocked death to its ugly face. To give just one example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was in the Flossenburg prison camp for his opposition to Nazism, a Lutheran pastor in Germany, he was hung on April 9th, 1945 right before the Allies came to liberate the camp. As he was going to the gallows, he didn't say this in the comfort of his room, waiting a far off death. It's as he's walking to be hung 
publicly naked, that he turned and said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. And that's how he died. That's how countless saints have died. My favorite last words, mocking death, has to be St. Lawrence, a third century martyr who was burned alive in a cage. He was barbecued. And these are his last words, according at least to the legends. Turn me over, I'm done on this side. <laughs> he is, in the lore of Catholicism, the patron saint of cooks and also comedians who said Catholics don't have a sense of humor. What do you fear? What do you fear? And can you look it in the face on the rock of Christ and say, do your worst. I have solid ground. We also don't come to, not because we just fear the wrong things, it's also because, relatedly, we go to the wrong securities. We seek false securities. And we run to them in our fear and panic. Judah ran to Egypt for protection, despite all of Isaiah's warnings. And you and I can do the same. As Americans living in the world's elite superpower, you and I haven't had to experience much by way of international threat these last 30 years. But with the possible collapse of American primacy on the global stage, we might be. We might be a whole lot more afraid than we've ever been. And the temptation will be for you and I to run to political strategies, to back the right political party, to back the right political candidate. But listen, whoever occupies that office, whether it's a David or it's an Ahab, Christ is on his throne. And so we rest secure. We have a firmer foundation in the world than some imagined halcyon days of American strength to which we need to return. We have the rock of Israel. We must run to this foundation, and only from that firm ground can we then rightly move into the world of politics and social activism uh, to, to, to strengthen what is weak, to pursue justice, to seek legal remedy to our current cultural decadence and decline. Not because our hopes are pinned to some piece of the American pie. Our hope isn't in Washington, D.C., but the city of God but because we love our neighbor and seek our neighbor's welfare. We can be non-anxious revolutionaries, patient, representing a heavenly country, seeking God's good in our world with confidence that Jesus is risen and currently reigns. Same with money. This financial collapse, this, this recession, the, 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 the future of our economy can lead us to panic, to hoarding, to forsaking generosity. If the global economy collapses, we will not. If recession strikes long and hard, we will endure. Whatever comes down Wall Street, we will not be shaken. We are not scared if we have Christ as our foundation. And if the banks all fold and the institutions totter and bankruptcy runs rampant and the bottom falls out, 
we will still be wise with our money and give it away for the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> because we have one who cares for us and we know he cares for us and we can rest secure. All of these solutions are really self-reliance. They're us running to every solution that we can conceive, control, consume, save the one who will actually save us. If we run from this living stone, it's not that we'll avoid him. It's that we will eventually in our wild flight run inevitably, inescapably into the sheer rock face of God himself. We will crash into the immovable stone and we will be shattered. But if we come to him as our sanctuary, the stone will prove to be our firm foundation and our place of rest. Whoever believes will be unshakable. And the word belief there, I want to be clear, doesn't just mean you believe certain things to be true. It's not mere mental assent. It's rendered, in my translation, as trust. Whoever trusts in him will not be shaken. Trust is a personal act of entrusting yourself to another. In other words, it means surrender. To surrender yourself to the living stone. As you come to him means as you surrender to him. Bono wrote a memoir this year, it was published this year, and in it he says the most powerful word in the English language is surrender. His autobiography is titled Surrender. And he describes the act of surrender as that moment when you give up control to some higher power who hopefully is in control because you're discovering you certainly are not. And looking at our long and checkered history as a race, it's not difficult to see the logic of surrender. History has been rightly called one bloody thing after another. As we reflect upon thousands and thousands of years of recorded history and just our own personal histories, if we're honest, it would appear we've been shackled by some great inexorable chain of cause and effect, a kind of karmic prison of consequence of eye for an eye, brutal logic that leaves us all eventually blind. There is real progress to be sure, but also real continuing loss. You and I live in a day and age of technology that was unimaginable to our grandparents, utterly unimaginable. And yet, how are we doing with that? How's our emotional health? The grinding wheel of history just keeps turning in a great circle, repeating itself in different iterations, wearing different garb, but all of it bloodied. Always the same familiar pattern, the recycled brutalities continue unabated, the same round of violence, century after century. It is against all historical evidence. It is a great leap of faith to continue to hold to the belief that somehow one day we are gonna decode our own brokenness. We're gonna decipher our own internal logic and somehow break out of this prison.
Only a power from outside our historical chain of cause and effect, it seems, can change anything. A breaking into and only then a breaking out of history's dark prison. Jesus entered into our tired world, a baby, into a world that was wearied with man's bloodied and muddied smudge. He entered into the great void of our world, into the pit of history, even into death itself. And three days later, he broke the bars of that prison once and for all. He conquered with a power to defeat all our corruption, including the corruption of death itself, which slowly eats away at each and every one of our lives. Jesus claimed he would be crucified, and he was. He also claimed three days later he would rise from the dead. And if that's true, if he defeated death, our greatest fear, then he should become our greatest fear. He says to you and I, I have conquered all your foes. Now surrender to me. And I will be your peace. I will be your hope. I will be your sure foundation. Listen, I get how hard this is. Many years ago as a young man, I sat in the back of a chapel and I mocked Christians, worshiping their Jesus with their tear-stained eyes. It was all so pathetic to me. I liked Jesus good enough. It was his followers that I struggled with. But as I sat there mocking, Jesus grabbed hold of me. And you know what he said to me? Through what was preached in the scripture, he said, I died for you. I've purchased you. You are mine. I have conquered death. Surrender to me. And you know what I said? No. I have no interest in the Christian life. The image in my mind was sitting on metal folding chairs in a musky basement of some church on the weekend. Why would I do that? No, I have zero interest in the Christian life, Jesus. And you know what he said to me? James, surrender to me. I don't have enough faith. What you lack, I will supply. I can't live the Christian life. Do I have to wear Christian t-shirts and listen to Christian music? I'm not a pious person, I can't do that. He said, you just follow me. And I finally said, I'm not strong enough to follow. And he said, I am with you always. And I still wrestle with him to surrender. I still am struggling to come to him with my fears and anxieties. And this morning, I want to celebrate the resurrection with y'all. I also want to surrender to him. Wherever you are, whether you have little to no faith or buckets of it, here is Jesus' word to you this morning. Surrender to me. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered death, a death that belonged to us was our just consequence. 
Lord, help us now to bend our knees in worship and in adoration, to honor you as holy.